Welcome to the Liar's Almanac, the radio show and podcast where the truth can kill you or set you free. Now, here's your host, Liam Sweeney. Uh, this is Liam Sweeney with uh, Liar's Almanac and Authors on the Air Global Radio Network podcast. Um, with me today, I have Bonnie Kistler, whose book, The Cage, offers up a uh, some interesting, an interesting scenario. And uh, Bonnie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Liam. Thank you for having me. Okay, so uh, let's uh, let's Q and A for a little bit here. Sure. Um, okay, so you created a situation for the accused in the book that uh, wasn't so cut and dried. Uh, Shay Lambert, the the main character, was put in a position where she couldn't get out of. Literally, uh, you put her in more cages than the one at the start of the book. That's right. Um, how hard would a case like hers be in real life? You know, I think it would be hard because as, as she says at one point, forensics will not help solve the mystery of whether, whether this was a murder or a suicide in that elevator because she claims that there was a struggle over the gun. Thus, both sets of you know, persons in that elevator would have fingerprints on the gun and you know, gunshot residue on their hands. And because we've established that the gun itself is impossible to trace because it's an unregistered ghost gun, uh, the police can only go on state of mind of the two individuals in the elevator. Was the victim, the shooting victim, suicidal? Did she have any motive for suicide? Contrarily, was Shay Lambert, uh, did she have a motive to murder the victim? And getting into state of mind, I think, is, is a really hard task for writers and the police. Okay, yeah, yeah, that uh, that was that was uh, it was very difficult when when I was reading that to to try to figure that out. You know what uh, what what it would you know what what really could be proven and what couldn't be proven. Yeah, okay. So um, so you're a trial lawyer, uh, so you've seen people try to be their own advocates, uh, probably failing miserably, and uh, <laughs> and Shay's a lawyer who shouldn't should have known what to do, and uh, she did the opposite. Uh, yes. Do you think do you think Shady Lambert's being a lawyer hurt her? I think it certainly made the police more suspicious of her from the get-go. And uh, if she had just been an ordinary layperson, they might not have uh, gone after her the way they did. On the other hand, I think being a lawyer, and especially being the kind of lawyer that Shay is, which is pretty cagey and devious, allowed her to try to wriggle through a lot of tricky questions and situations better than a lay person would have been. But as we see, it all blows up on her because, not because she's a lawyer, but because she has deliberately withheld certain facts, both from the police and from the reader. And okay. when those facts emerge, she's trapped. She's in another cage. I love that whole more, more than one cage, the, yes. the whole situation of this. Okay, um, now uh, Ingram Barrett, uh, he, he represents the worst in us. He's, um, he's ruthless. He's power hungry. Uh, he is the antagonist in, in this scenario. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard to find much to redeem him. And maybe at that level, he wouldn't care. Um, so, so how do you imagine he would have gotten that way? Uh, you think he was born that way? Or do you think it was a, uh, just an upbringing of circumstance that would make a guy like um, Ingram Barrett? You know, he is, he is clearly the straight up bad guy. And uh, in his mind, the ends absolutely justify the means. And that's why he feels free to just frame Shay for a crime he knows or should know she did not commit. Uh, but I'm not totally unsympathetic to him. 
I think that he is a man uh, who was raised that way, not born that way, raised that way. He was brought up in a culture where the value of a man is dependent entirely upon his position in the business world, uh, how, what his income is, what his rank is, what the perks and privileges that go with his rank are, what he can do with that income and wealth. And he has to, you know, it's assumed from birth, you know, that, that he will be a big earner and that he will achieve much and that he will go far, farther than his father and his grandfather before him. And I think this is a burden that's placed on, traditionally placed on a lot of men in our society. And I like to say on women too, increasingly, uh, he values himself only by the position he holds and he knows, and it's sadly true that his family, his so-called loved ones only value him for that position and income too. And when that position and income are threatened, he, he realizes that he's, he's worth more dead than alive. And so I feel, I feel sympathetic to that viewpoint. Obviously, this burden that he's been raised with is what allows him to do the heinous things that he does. His acts are, are clearly heinous. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that uh, and he's, play, he's played very well. He's portrayed very well in that, in that sense. Um, and uh, kudos for that. And, and yeah, he, he, it's, it's, it's really difficult to see. In, in a way, when you're reading it, it's really difficult to see how an Ingrid Bear turns out another way. Yeah. I mean, to be in that position, I think if you put anybody into the position of, um, of, of that high a council in such a big company, you know, probably it probably maybe even, even, even attracts a type. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, I'd like to point out that Shay Lambert has a lot of that same mindset. Uh, we know from her backstory that she was a high flyer in a Wall Street law firm uh, when the Great Recession hit. She's lost her job. She's lost everything that she used to identify herself. And part of the reason that she's so desperate to, to land this job at the, at the company is that she herself sees her value only in, you know, her achievements in the business world. And you almost have to wonder if she's going to turn into Ingram Barrett at the, after the end of this book. You know, is that she's cut all of her personal ties and now identifies herself solely with the success of this company. It's, it's a, you know, I think a problem throughout our society and capitalism at large. Yeah, and that, you know, and it's an interesting thing, I think, too, because you see her and I think they, which you, what, and especially for me, because now that you're saying this, I think about it. Um, you know, you see her as different than Ingram Barrett because she had a period in her life where she was poor. Right. And she comes into this story from being poor. If she had been, you know, upper middle class from the whole get-go, you might even see her. I mean, we see that in society, people coming up from poverty, people coming up, you know, and having the poor period. And somehow that makes them, you know, somehow more deserving of like our sympathies even when they get to a, a height than someone like Ingrid Bear, who we assume just was always you know at an upper class kind of uh, existence and um so yeah you, you see that that she is seen differently because of a background situation like that right okay so um now here we go uh this is in many ways a legal thriller and yeah. some of it is inside baseball um, how do you make sure you talk just enough shop to keep it interesting, but not so much that you would like lose the reader? Yeah, that's a constant problem. And, you know, I can't say for certain that I ever achieved exactly the right balance. I wanted to have enough of the details for verisimilitude that this would actually happen. I'm not just, you know, 
creating, you know, shapes and clouds. Uh, this is all reality based. These are things that actually go on in the legal world. And in order to give it, you know, that that air of veracity, I felt I had to have a lot of detail. But I know I think that there are some readers who are put off by a lot of legalese. And all I can say to them is you don't really need to understand. You don't need to have you don't need to have enough knowledge to go into court the next day on your own. <laughs> you just really have, have to understand that the, that the characters know this stuff and they know what's going on. And this is what the motivation is. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's what I got from the story. Like, I mean, you didn't ever take it to the point where it was just, you know, I had to start looking stuff up, but I mean, it yeah. got to, but, but it was, yeah, but it was, it was enough to be interesting to, you know, to see, okay, well that, that happens. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now without getting, giving anything away, um, not everything in the cage is what it seems. Uh, when you had this story in your mind, uh, do you see the twists and turns or did they come into focus as you started writing? I didn't see all the twists and turns. When, when I start when I started this book, as with any book that I've started, I always know what the initial premise is and I know where I want it to end up. But I don't always know exactly how I'll get there. And often during the course of writing, I'll, you know, I'll be knowing that there's going to be a problem ahead. How am I going to get her out of this jam or how am I going to fix this so there's a reason to do this? And it will come to me as, as I'm working, as I'm writing. And then if it surprises me, if, if I go, oh, great, that's a great solution to that problem, then I have some hope that will also surprise and delight the reader. Yeah, definitely, definitely did, definitely did. Um, so uh, now there are some issues touched upon in this story. And again, without spoilers, uh, Shay uncovered some global wrongdoing that is unfortunately common in the corporate world. Yeah. Uh, what is a lawyer's duty when their client and basic humanity part ways? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's an ethical issue that's definitely presented here, and you know the the, the bar rules, the rules on ethics, counsel confidentiality. Your client's secrets are your secrets. You know you have to keep them, but the exception is for something that's ongoing or future crime. And so if you know that your client is about to do or is in the process of doing something. Uh, that's illegal, then confidentiality gets trumped by the duty to disclose that. In Shay's case, it was not clear to her that it was ongoing. She knew that it was a past uh, crime for sure. Uh, and she chose to keep it confidential, although in a sneaky way, uh, a devious way. <laughs> and part of, part of what boxes her into this cage in the book is that she didn't just come right out and tell everybody at the outset, what she discovered and exactly what happened in that elevator. And part of the reason is that she thinks she's playing a long game here. She knows she's playing a long game. Part of the reason also is this is a girl who's basically been lying her entire life. And that was her first instinct. She has invented herself. She has reformed herself into the image that she wanted to present to the world. And so that's when she comes out of that elevator, the survivor, uh, she's already decided that I'm going to go with this story. And, and I think that I can play three-dimensional chess here and have it work out. She does get caught up, but <laughs> she, has, she has a game plan in mind. Oh yeah, and as you go into this story, you, you really see the, the game plan start to, start to uh, evolve. You see it evolve pretty nicely. Um, okay, this is uh, Liar's Almanac. Uh, uh, authors on the air podcast uh where i'm liam sweeney i'm here with bonnie kistler uh, we're talking about the cage um so 
let me get to when when I started doing this um, podcast, uh, it, it was, you know, there was, it was a lot about books about deception, but I was looking at it more from the perspective of authors are paid liars. I mean, we're professional liars. That's what we, we are. We are paid to lie to people in such an interesting way that they actually want to believe our lies. Uh-huh. So um, when you're creating a, a, a character like Shay, you're, you're creating um, a main character. You are creating a point of view character. You are creating a character that you're going to jump into. And, you know, you're going to live vicariously through her throughout the whole manuscript as you're writing. So how did you decide what parts of you to imbue her with? And what parts of you should you, did you set, decide to make her, how did you make, decide to make her like you and how to make her different? I don't think she's too much like me. I think for, for one thing, she's a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> but but we did, come, I'm, and she comes from a much more squalid background than I did. But I, to some extent, I, I came from a working class background, but managed to do, you know, to get a, high-powered education and to, to land in the high-powered law firms like, like Shay did. Uh, so we had that so, somewhat of a similar career trajectory. Uh, I, as I said earlier, Shay has been lying her whole life. I don't think I've lied about who I am, but certainly, and I love your analogy, Liam, to, to writing fiction as lying for a living. That's something I've always done. I've always spun stories and and uh, tales and invented worlds and... and uh, so I, I think to that extent, I'm a liar like Shay. And, and, um, and now when you, when you lie, I mean, when, you know, when I say when we lie, I mean, when we lie professionally, we, we lie as authors, um, you know, there's, and I think this is probably true in the legal profession. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but the lie is like, there are ways to get away with lying and there are ways to, like the difference between lie and spin you know, that there are ways to get away with a lie, ways not to get away with a lie. Like, uh, you know, if you have your lie down to every single nanosecond detail and you tell someone all of that information when they didn't ask, they probably know you're lying. You know, I say, you know, keep it vague, only tell people what they want to know. As a writer, you have to do research. You have to look into places like uh, the fashion industry, in the case of the cage, into New York City, the fashion industry, the, that legal environment. So how, how did you decide what to, uh, what to include and what to not include in, you know, this quote unquote lie of, of description and, and uh, you know, scene building, world building? You know, what we would say in the law biz is we're not lying, we're framing the issue. <laughs> and it's a, it's a question of, you know, putting your best facts forward uh, and sort of subtly, you know, shuffling off to one side the facts that may not necessarily put your case in the best light. It's a question of, uh, you know, proportion. And, uh, and I think to some extent, that's what I bring to fiction writing as well, which is you, you uh, focus on the things that are gonna bring the best, the heightened value to the story. You focus on those aspects, give them the elevation. Details that might be perfectly true, but don't help the story, don't advance the plot, they go down to the bottom, you know, they sift to the bottom. So we're framing the issue in a way that makes the story more interesting and exciting. Okay. Yeah, that, that, and that makes sense. That makes sense. So let me, uh, you know, I, I, I like to look at the craft as well, not just, you know, the content of what we do, but the craft of what we do. And um, sounds like, I guess, a corny question, but I, I like to talk about process. Mm-hmm. So take us through when you were doing this, um, 
when you were doing this book, let's say, how long did it take you? And take us through like an average day of you writing this. I don't have an average day because I, unlike most commercial fiction authors, do not have any work ethic. I don't, I don't <laughs> have any, any rules about I have to do you know a thousand words a day, or I have to be in the chair in front of the computer from you know 7 a.m. to noon every day. I know a lot of writers who swear by that kind of discipline. Uh, I don't believe in it. I think that uh, fiction comes from ideas formulating in the mind. And I think they come spontaneously. I don't think you force it onto the page. And those times when I've attempted to, to have that kind of discipline and work ethic, I'll you say, okay, I'm just gonna write. I'm just gonna see what comes. And there's lots of people say, you know, you, you get it on the page and you worry about it later. Well, here's my problem. I always go back and read what I wrote the day before. And if I force it onto the page, it's garbage. I can tell it's garbage. And I get so discouraged, I walk away from the project. I'd rather not put anything onto the page until I'm at least moderately happy with it. And so I will go days without, even what, you know, when I'm in the, the, the total you know, dedicated, I'm working on this novel, I'll go days without sitting in front of the computer. But then I'll be thinking about it. Yeah, I'll be gardening, I'll be driving, I'll be, you know, it's always in my head. And when the words are right, when the words are ready to come, I go to the computer and then I might spend, you know, three 12 hour days in a row getting it down. So I, I let the, you know, I, I don't have a process like most writers do. I know I'm different. <laughs> it seems to be working for me so far. Every process is a process. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a process that you're talking about. I, I, um, I, I spend a lot more time thinking about what I'm going to write without, you know, before I write anything. Of course. Um, oh yeah. So, uh, now is this your first book or is this, um, is this in a, you know, in a line of books? Uh, my, my first novel as Bonnie Kistler was House on Fire, which was published in uh, 2019. Uh, this is my second as Bonnie Kistler. I had an earlier career writing under my maiden name, Bonnie McDougall, but that was quite a, quite a while ago, back in the nineties. Uh, and those books are, you know, have faded into oblivion. <laughs> they all do. I, I don't have anything from the '90s, but I do have some from the 2000s, and yeah, they, they, uh, they, they disappear. <laughs> um, so let's see. Now it must have been it's Bonnie Kistler. Um, you you had that book in 2019. That must have been very interesting, trying to promote that with the pandemic, because yeah. that was right after that. Yeah, yeah, it came, you know, in March 2020. Uh, so I was a year ahead and had, you know, modest uh, publicity efforts going on for that before the pandemic struck. Uh, I was lucky with uh, The Cage that came out just this past February, but by that time we were traveling again. I was able to get on a plane and feel, you know, relatively comfortable and uh, did most of the East Coast and California and uh, had a good time meeting readers and booksellers. Good, good. That that that's cool. It's good to it's good to hear. Um, yeah, so yeah, hope it continues. <laughs> so, um, do you have any books? Because you've written a number of books in the past, and um, you probably have some coming up. Um, so let, let's actually, before I ask the other one, let me ask about uh, books coming up. Do you have anything coming up after the cage? Like anything you're working on now that you want to drop a hint about? Uh, I'm not working on it. It's done. It's in the can. Uh, it's called Her Two. And it will be published by Harper Books next year, about this time next year. Nice, nice. 
Um, do you want to talk about it at all? Uh, you know, give a, give us an elevator pitch, anything like that? Yeah, short elevator pitch. It's a story of a lawyer who's built her entire career defending men accused of sexual assault. And she's the one who sweeps in with the big settlement check and the NDA when, when there's an incident. Athletes and musicians are her bread and butter. And she's she's immune to accusations that she's a gender traitor and that, you know, feminists are picketing her outside the courthouse and so forth. She doesn't care about any of that until something happens in her own life that turns everything upside down. Well, that, that sounds good, actually. I, I like that. I'm gonna have to get that when it comes out. Um, let's see. I, I will go for the one, one last question. Um, Everybody has their book that is, you know, every author, every professional liar has a particular lie they have told that they love more than everything else. And it, they don't feel it got the reception or the do or just under the circumstance didn't make it as much as they would have wanted it to be made because they think it was just that that well and people should have read it. Was there your baby that was was there any book that you wrote that was your baby that you feel should have you wished had gotten more more traction. You know, there was a book I wrote that never sold and was never published. And I, at the time, I very much thought that this was a book that should have gone everywhere. It was called Startup, and it was about a young man uh, trying to get venture capital to start up a company that would, now here's the funny part, would manufacture something which I thought I invented, which was basically the iPhone before the iPhone came out. <laughs> <laughs> and I had all of these details where I described the things that this imaginary phone could do. And obviously real people were thinking about the real thing at the same time, but I thought that I was just making something up and uh, it was very exciting. And if it had been published that week, it might've might might done well, you know, within a matter of like 18 months, it was obsolete because the iPhone actually existed by that point. <laughs> well, I think in hindsight, it's a good thing it was not published. It would have, I would have had a lot of egg on my face. Okay, so I did say that was the last question, but this is Liar's Almanac, so I am allowed to lie. Um, last, last question. Um, with legal thrillers, writing writing legal thrillers, is it an issue where, you know, you're writing something that is today and it comes out and, you know, when it comes out, it was yesterday because, mm -hmm. you know, you're writing stuff that's right on the pulse of what's going on right now. Yeah. Um, has, that, has that happened to you yet? It has not happened yet. Uh, most of the quote legal issues that have been involved in my books are, you know, still are, you know, basic fundamental law that won't change. The biggest thing I've noticed from, especially from my earlier books, is technology. You know, and and uh, I see this in a lot of, of a lot of big name writers too. When I read their backlist, you know, the, the technology is almost laughably embarrassing. You know, if you somebody is very excited about camera phones, and the whole book is about, wow, you can take, you know, pictures with your camera with your phone. <laughs> Now you just have to laugh. So in many ways, you, you have to wish that you were writing historical fiction and you would never be confronted with these problems. Everything would be set in that time and you'd be done. I guess maybe that's the way people should write current fiction, just yeah. assume it's assume it's going to be historical fiction in five yes, years. Right. <laughs> okay, so uh, once again, The Liar's Almanac, uh, authors on their Global Radio Network podcast, and I'm here with Bonnie Kistler. Um, the book is The Cage. And uh, it is out now, right? It is, yes. In fact, I know it's out now because I bought it. Okay, so I like to ask questions I already know the answers to. Yeah. Um, lawyers so, do too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Bonnie, it was great talking to you. And um, 
again, the book is The Cage, Bonnie Kistler. Uh, please go out and buy it. It is a great book. I had, I, I, I have a hard time reading sometimes. So if I'm able to devour a book, I know it's good. Okay, that that's how I know it's good. If I if I read it in like a few days, I know it's great. So. <laughs> Thanks, Liam. It was a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure talking to you too. Bye-bye. This episode of The Liar's Almanac with Liam Sweeney is copyrighted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you for listening.